Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Podcast like Like it's 1999. I'm your host, Phil Liskov, and I am thrilled to introduce my guest today, uh, Richard Lawson, Chief Critic at Vanity Fair. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Fiona Apple, um, specifically uh, When the Pawn, which came out in 1999. But I really wanted to talk to you a little bit up top just about where you were living in 99 and sort of you know what uh, Richard Lawson was like in 1999. Well, um, when, when the pond came out, I was 16. Um, I was Uh living in Boston, uh, and it was kind of a, a a monumental fall for me. Um, in the fall of 1999, um, I had just come out the summer, uh, that summer, um, mostly to a couple friends and my sister, uh, and then school started and I just decided not to like go around telling people. I just sort of all of a sudden was gay (laughs) and uh, I kind of got a new group of friends. I tried out for a school play and with that sort of developed a very significant crush on someone I was doing the play with. Uh, And then along came uh, when the pawn, which um, with uh, in in tandem with title, her previous album and um, some other music uh, really seemed to speak directly to my 16 year old angst. So in hindsight, why do you think that is? Well, I think that she was someone who seemed, I mean, you know, I already knew at that point um, that I had an interest in writing um, and I liked her verbiage. I liked the way that she, you know, um, existed in popular culture, but was kind of 
cool in a way that didn't feel synthetically cool. You know, um, at that time we were seeing the, 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 the ascendancy of bubblegum pop emerging out of the kind of nihilism of grunge. And neither of those two hats really ever fit me. I, I liked music in either genre, but something about the mix of the edginess, but also an accessibility, um, at least as I saw it, um, about Fiona Apple just really, uh, rang a bell for me. Um, and I think that, you know, you see with the release of her new album, uh, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, um, in particular, it seems like a lot of gay men are like super excited about it and women too, but like, um, and, and I think I was like, oh yeah, I guess that maybe she existed that way for a lot of people, um, in a similar situation to me. I just had thought it was my own little private thing, but it seems not. Yeah. It's, it, it really does feel like she, and I've been, I've really kind of, we're in kind of peak Fiona right now. It feels like a little bit just yeah. in terms of the fact, obviously with the, with the new album coming out, which is, you know, a, a masterpiece, but um, it feels like a lot of people have sort of gone down a rabbit hole uh, with Fiona Apple right now, but listening to her stuff and, and listening to obviously to, to when the pawn again over the past couple of days, it, I'm really hit with just how sort of unabashedly herself she is. And, yeah. and, and that had to be, I mean, it certainly was for me in 99, but also just to someone who was coming out to see somebody who was just sort of so fearlessly herself has to be really powerful, I imagine. It, it was. I mean, I don't know that I would have put it in those terms then, um, but definitely in hindsight. I mean, I remember sure um, when when the first single for When the Pawn was first coming out, so that would have been mm-hmm. Fast As You Can. Yeah. Um, I was listening to Kiss 108, which is the big top 40 station in Boston. And they were doing a thing where they would play a new single from, you know, an artist that we knew. Um, and, and people would basically vote via call in on whether or not they should put it into heavy rotation. And because they'd had success with Criminal um, from Tidal, they gave Fast As You Can a chance. And I just remember <laughs> at least one or two people calling in you know, from the Boston area being like, that was weird. I didn't like it. And then they never played it again. And (laughs) something about that, I was like, it is weird, but I like it. And you guys are all just, you know, missing the, the, the point and and everything. So it, it, it did feel like a little bit of a badge of, of, I don't know, idiosyncrasy or something that I kind of understood or thought I understood what she was saying in a way that, um, you know, people around me did not. No, I, I I absolutely agree with that. I also feel like for me, um, so I was 19 when this came out and I was in my first year of film school in Toronto and um, Magnolia and this album, you know, mm-hmm. obviously she was dating Paul Thomas Anderson at the time. And, and you have sort of these, uh, these two iconoclasts, these two people that just seem to give zero fucks about anything and just, just felt to me to be sort of full-throated artists within a system that didn't really allow that very much. So that was really exciting to me as well. I, I kind of, these two things feel synonymous in my brain in a weird way. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen pairings like this before, you know, Patty Smith and uh, Robert Mapplethorpe or Patty Smith and Sam Shepard or Sid and Nancy or whatever, you know, these kind of sure. Courtney and Kurt um, less doomed than that. Thank God. Um yes. But yeah, they were just so good at what they were doing and they were young and they were doing something different while taking influence from older artists, but, you know, passing it through their system and making it something very much their own. Um, And yeah, those two, those kind of twin albums of When the Pawn um, and the Magnolia soundtrack, which is a lot of Amy Mann songs, came out around the same time and and they just, just laser focused like right into my brain. Um, And I remember when they were at the Oscars, Paul Thomas Anderson was nominated for best original screenplay for Magnolia. Uh, he lost to American beauty, um, which now seems like (laughs) insane injustice. (laughs) Uh, and there was this reaction shot of Fiona comforting him, but also kind of mocking it at the same time. And that has stuck with me for 20 years. You know, it was just, and, and maybe it was a little petulant, a little whatever, but, um, 
the way that she seemed to both care and not care, uh, I was like, I want to figure out how to exist in the world that way too. <laughs> no, t- absolutely. I mean, it, it's that gif has been floating around for the past couple years of that moment when he lost, mm-hmm. and it it really is like it's a, it's an amazing little time capsule of just two people at sort of the peak of their powers in a weird way. I mean, that's not to say that they both haven't obviously had tremendous careers outside of it, but just that moment, that crest of a wave is just a, an, an impressive little moment. I, um, I also think it's interesting that John Bryan seems to be kind of the connective tissue between all of this a little bit. You know, John Bryan does the score for Magnolia, um, produced a lot of Amy Mann's work produced obviously, uh, when the pawn and, uh, and many other pieces of Fiona's work, it's just really interesting. He's a really interesting person unto himself. Well, yeah, and he also, you know, would come to occupy more like cool arty space. He he did stuff for um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there was just this whole class of people in the late '90s, early to mid 2000s, who really helped um, set the kind of aesthetic tone um, for so much of what was to come. And even if Fiona Apple herself became more of a niche curio you know that that some people kind of fanned for loyal you know with some loyalty you know the most people weren't listening to extraordinary machine or the idler wheel and yet a lot of her temperament uh her compositions mixed with brian's producing mixed with her pta associations i mean that just kind of defined cool for i think a lot of uh of culture um that's come since I, I I completely agree. I, I also think it unfortunately led her to be misinterpreted by a lot of yeah. people. Um, and so I'm, I just want to give a, a little bit of a brief biographical um, sort of summation of, of Fiona Apple for the people that might not necessarily know that much about her. Um, she's the daughter of actor Brandon Maggart. Uh, she was born in New York. She was raised between New York and Los Angeles, where her father lived. She was classically trained on the piano. Uh, she'd been composing songs since she was eight years old, and her debut album, Title, uh, was written, basically came out when she was 17 years old. It was released in 1996, received a, a bunch of uh, Grammy nominations, uh, and at a Grammy Award for Best Female Vocal Rock Performance for Criminal. Uh, she went on to make When the Pawn, which came out in 99, which was produced, as we mentioned, by John Bryan. Uh, then she does Extraordinary Machine in 2005. Um, it took a long time for that album to get released. It changed producers. It went through a whole bunch of uh, different iterations before it eventually came out in 05, was nominated for some Grammys. Idler Wheel came out in 2012, which was her fourth studio album. Um, it was produced primarily by herself, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then uh, last week, she put out her first album in eight years called Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which again was produced um, primarily by herself uh, at home. She has sold over 8 million albums worldwide. She's received numerous awards and nominations, including a Grammy Award, MTV Video Music Award, Billboard Awards, and what have you. Um, this brings us to perhaps, uh, I don't know if you want to say a fork in the road, but certainly a seismic moment in her career, which was the, uh, MTV, uh, video music awards when, uh, she won an award at the 97 MTV video music awards and gave an acceptance speech. And I will read this acceptance speech very quickly. Uh, this world is bullshit and you shouldn't model your life. Wait a second. You shouldn't model your life about what you think is cool and what we're wearing and what we're saying and everything go with yourself. So this feels like a moment and I, I kind of wanted to sort of uh, highlight it because it feels like it's the moment when everyone thinks that they get her. And I don't think they ever really did. I think they thought she was a spoiled brat for lack of a better way of putting it and it feels like the media kind of glommed onto that and sort of really misinterpreted her for many many years after that i don't know how you feel about that richard you know i think absolutely it was misinterpreted i think you know in in the the few interviews she's done um in the lead up to fetch the bolt cutters with um emily nussbaum profiled her in new yorker and then um rachel um sorry i forget i'm forgetting her name um but someone at the cut um Handler, has I think, been, Rachel Handler. Yeah, Rachel Handler, thank you. Has yeah. Rachel Handler at the cut has been uh, doing interviews with her kind of regularly throughout the you know about a year. Um, yeah. She she's clarified maybe something we all should have heard back then, which was what <laughs> she was issuing. The, this is bullshit as a means of comfort to people. Yeah. She was saying, "Don't worry that you can't. What you're seeing on the stage tonight 
doesn't feel like your life or, or feels impossibly far away from anything that you look like or can sound like or can be, um, just be yourself. I mean, it was, it was a kind of edgier way of saying be yourself, you know, and, um, I think people were so ready to pounce on the pretty young thing who had the temerity to also be talented, uh, that they really, <laughs> you know, tore her apart for it, which, um, you know, I think was her kind, it seemed like her kind of retreat moment. I mean, you know, when the pawn, obviously came and there were music videos and there was press for it. Like it was a thing, but that was really after that, she kind of just disappeared um, except for these occasional albums. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because it feels like even just if you watch the clip and I'll, I'll post a link to the clip on our, on our Twitter feed, but it's, just within the span of the two minutes that she speaks up there, people boo her, then they applaud her. <laughs> like it's, it's all over the map. And it, it just feels like even in that moment, people just didn't really know how to process what was going on. And I, it's interesting to see, and I agree with you. She does retreat from that point, or at the very least, she finds her voice, her own voice. I don't, I don't know about you. And, and, and we'll talk about this as we get deeper into this, but title is is my least favorite album of hers. It feels the least interesting to me. Um, It feels the most sort of studio. I don't know how you feel about it, but it it does feel like when the pawn was when she really starts to get what she wants to do with music. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, fetch the bolt cutters, um, which was, you know, recorded in her own home using her own mm-hmm. dogs and friends dogs and <laughs> pots and pans and the i believe an urn full of ashes of a dear, yep. dearly departed dog um you know it's so her and 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 then to to read interviews with her where she's basically saying that um title and when the pond were too produced they 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 weren't really her they were a, you know a, a record label's idea of what they wanted her to sound like it, that hurts for me to read a little bit because um i i hold title quite dear because it was really important to me um as a kid um but sure. listening to to bolt cutters compared to that you're like oh okay so this is what she was headed toward uh, and was sort of roadblocked f- for a while. Um, yeah, so it is, it's thrilling, even if it's not exactly my like platonic ideal of Fiona Apple music, the new stuff. Um, it's thrilling to hear her in the kind of full bloom of, of, of herself. I, I, I absolutely agree. I, I, I feel like when the pawn is the most polished version of what she wants to do like there's a lot of chaos in when the pawn it's just streamlined and and produced um but you can still feel someone who's figured out sort of how they want music to sound if that makes any sense that she just sort of that she's figured out how to break it up into pieces and to make it sort of feel more her own um which is why i think it's such an exciting album to me it it, it really just feels like someone finding their voice which as as a writer myself and as an artist on some level seeing that is just is just incredibly exciting yeah i think it a, a lot of it has to do with uh, a sort of general cultural ethos that says that you know famous women can't really be alienating they're not really allowed to be um right. challenging um you know thinking back to yoko ono and being blamed for breaking up a band that she had no nothing to do with their breakup you know but she was right. making weird music and they didn't like that um you know you think about like the way that bjork who was a pretty revolutionary artist and got good reviews and had respect but like very quickly became a punchline you know this weird icelandic fairy creature and no one and people really were hesitant to take her seriously because she was putting out stuff that was kind of hard to listen to or hard to understand. And I think that, you know, that person, that artist was always in Fiona Apple as well. And it's, it's, it's evident in her, her first two albums. Um, but under a layer of accessibility and Lux production and, you know, melodiousness that she seems now pretty allergic to. Um, and yeah, so I think it, it, it it's, it's both about an artist evolution, but also about the kind of, constraints that uh culture puts on someone that might require bolt cutters to cut off (laughs) (laughs) it's it's funny that you bring up bjork because and i'm I'm sure it will not surprise you when i tell you that bjork is one of my favorite artists as well um because the evolution that you're just talking about this idea of someone who they were both kind of cresting around the same time you know i mean post comes out in 95 homogenic comes out in 97 um you know, obviously when the pond comes out in 99, you've got Vespertine in 2001, like they're both sort of 
artistically growing at the same time. And both of them, you see them slowly but surely becoming more and more, um, just really kind of getting down to their, to the, the DNA of what they want music to sound like. And, and that melody, which is still there. I mean, it's funny. I played, I played a song from, uh, Fetch the Bolt Cutters to my roommate last night who, is just not a, is just not really all that into music in general. And I played her under the table and which I think actually does have quite a rhythm and quite a melody to it. And she just didn't hear it. <laughs> so it's possible that to, to, to some people, it just sounds like the antithesis of, of melody, but I, I don't know. I still hear it there. Oh, it's there. Yeah. I, I think it's just there in kind of her terms, you know? Right. Um, and I think that, I think that music is a, is a, is a difficult medium because unlike movies where there's really a set amount that come out every year, you know, and we can yes. kind of use them to, to graft our personalities onto them or real world, you know, politics onto them or whatever. Like, like we have only so many pieces to play with, but with music, it's kind of limitless. And so when someone, present something that is just a little difficult that has that kind of pebble in your shoe quality to it. I think it's really easy to throw it away because it's just, it's just hard. And there's another, there are, you know, myriad other options, um, to, to kind of, uh, satisfy whatever we're looking for. So I think this is the kind um, you know, her, her work starting with when the pawn is the kind of thing that you really have to sit with and think about. And, um, because it's not so, it doesn't wash over you quite as easily. Um, and I think that's why she's engendered partly such a, a devout, devout fan base, even if it's, you know, much smaller than the success of title uh, would have seemed to suggest, uh, 23 years ago. For sure. I mean, it, it's to, to sort of piggyback on what you're saying. Um, some people just don't want to be challenged, which is completely fair. And I'm, I'm not judging any of those people. I mean, I understand, uh, the world's a tough place and some people just want art to be something that is enjoyable and entertaining. Um, and there's, I have a, I have a plethora of those type of artists that I listen to as well. Um, so I, I totally get that, but I do think that this sort of kind of, um, this taps into, uh, the perception issues that she was having at the time post title going into when the pawn, which is, um, so I also, I'm, I'm going to read the full title of this album very quickly here because it feels like it needs to be said. Uh, when the pawn hits the conflicts, he thinks like a king. What he knows throws the blows when he goes to the fight and he'll win the whole thing before he enters the ring. There's nobody to batter when your mind is your might. So when you go solo, you hold your own hand and remember that depth is the greatest of heights. And if you know where you stand, then you know where to land. And if you fall, it won't matter because you know that you were right which hmm. became a punchline. Mm -hmm. And I read that now and it gives me goosebumps. Like it's, it's such a beautiful way of her um, giving herself strength and, and propping herself up in, in what was a, a somewhat demeaning process that she was going through, um, which came from a, a terrible spin article that was written about her um, back in 97 that uh, described her as a pop star trapped in the body of a pretty teenage girl, the kind of arty ravished girl you knew in junior high who wrote poetry in lowercase letters between cheesecake photos of a pained looking Fiona. Um, it was just a, a really brutal misogynistic article that kind of really broke her down um, into this terrible stereotype. Um, I understand that when you make an album title that has, um, you know, something like, I don't know how many characters it has in it, but a lot of them. Um, it's several it, tweets at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's, I understand on some level why someone would look at that and say, this is pretentious, but if you actually take a second to read the words and understand the context of it, it's, it's a really beautiful sentiment. Yeah. I mean, I think that we still have a problem processing earnestness, you know? Um, yeah. I think we've gotten better about that younger generations, you know, Gen Z and, 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 and younger are, are a lot more attuned to that. But, you know, in 1999 or 97, when, when title came out, like sure. we were still in grunge, we were still dominated by Gen X kind of thinking and um, so eager to, kind of have one on somebody to like have one up on them and, and to kind of like have them figured out and, and have the kind of wry sardonic take on them. Um, 
And someone like Apple, who is so, it seems incapable of obfuscating or being coy um, about what she wants to talk about, um, that really kind of clangs uh, discordantly against a kind of over it jaded culture, you know, and I, I'm glad now that people can look back at when the pawn and it's, you know, <laughs> ungainly title, um, and, and see the actual intent there, um, and not roll their eyes because what's the point of rolling your eyes about something that's 21 years old. <laughs> I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I also wonder if the perception, um, to pivot just slightly, but the perception of mental illness has changed a little bit as well. Um, not as much as, as Lord knows it needs to, but it does feel like she was kind of tagged with this, this crazy moniker a lot back then too. Um, you know, her music dives into a lot of the, the, um, hardships that she's had to deal with a lot of the mental illness that she's dealt with. She's talked a lot about her OCD and anxiety disorders and eating disorders and the like, which I imagine are an offshoot of any number of things, but was exacerbated by the way she was treated in the press. Um, and I wonder if now with us being a little bit more understanding of that, if her work becomes that much more radiant. I think so. And I think also, you know, the, the late nineties was such a, a potent era for like the Kate Moss heroin aesthetic or cocaine aesthetic, or, mm-hmm. you know, Courtney love to some extent. And, 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 and I, I don't doubt that a lot of those people were having genuine problems, but we didn't really, culture didn't really process it at that. They, they, it, we looked at it as a put on as a kind of, you know, like that person is preppy and that person is, you know, druggy, crazy chic, you know? And, and I think that when the pawn, um, when, when the pawn came out, um, people were like, oh, wait, maybe she actually is this kind of furious mind that we thought was just an act um, because that's what we can only understand this or only want to understand this in aesthetic terms. Um, And it frightened people, you know, and I think that like men in particular, uh, uh, like people who write spin articles sometimes, um, when they're, when they're kind of frightened by something, they, they tend to attack it, right? And, and try to, try to belittle it and take it down and, and, and dismiss it. And I think that that's what, um, she was victim of and which is why it's so exciting 20 years later, um, to have her come out with a lauded album that speaks directly to those, you know, that feeling and, and really pushes back against it. I, I absolutely agree. I, I also think so. It's interesting to see how the album, specifically when the pawn has been reappraised. Over the last, I would say, year or so, uh, last year being obviously the 20th anniversary of 1999, uh, there was a lot of reappraisal going on, and Pitchfork Media did a, a re-review of her album. When the album came out in 99, they, they, they spoke favorably of it. They gave it like an 8 out of 10 or something like that. And then they reappraised it, gave it a 9.4 out of 10. Um, and there's a, there's a quote here that I think is really interesting that said, by the time she started composing her second album, Fiona Apple had a reputation as a bitch, a brat, a heroin chic waif, and possible anorexic, a performer who, according to the New York Times, plays a Lolita-ish suburban party girl on TV, but comes on more like a shrinking violet in concert. It was hers to shake off or at least to reshape on her own terms. Um, which I think is, is, accurate as uh, unfortunate as it is but that's sort of how she goes into composing these songs and i think it's it's why these songs feel a lot more visceral they feel a lot more um quite frankly violent at times mm-hmm. <laughs> um and it, it's just it, it's just it is interesting to to be able to See it through that lens, I guess now, 20 years on, being able to finally appreciate this album for what it was, even if it wasn't maligned at the time, it was getting, you know, it got better than average reviews, but I just don't think people knew what to make of her, quite honestly. No, I mean, I think it goes back to the um, bewildered calls to kiss 108, <laughs> you know, <laughs> people being like, what? Doesn't everything go back to that? You know, and I don't think I understood what she was talking about entirely or maybe even at all at the time but the huh was really exciting to me you know um and i think that it's really cool you know fiona is a few years older than me and both of us um Mm -hmm. but but you know a negligible difference um and to grow up uh, you know kind of with someone or at least with their work um 
and and to kind of now look back as a 1999 album as being a mile marker for her, but also for yourself. Um, the huh feels more clarified. And maybe that's the point is that, you know, we can really only understand it uh, once we're out, once we're through that crucible ourselves. Um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, so the album comes out on, on November 9th, 1999, uh, entirely written by Fiona Apple, produced by John Bryan, as we mentioned. There are 10 tracks in the album. Um, it had three singles. Uh, the first was Fast As You Can, which came out on November 20th, uh, 1999. Uh, Limp, which came out in 2000, and then Paper Bag, which came out near the end of 2000. Uh, the album received a Grammy Award nomination for Best Alternative Album. Um, as we mentioned, the reviews were were you know, were positive, but not glowing. Um, when that's at the, at upon its release, uh, it broke the record for longest album title with 444 characters, uh, shortly beaten, uh, by Chumbawamba a few years later. Um, another group though, I think we really need to reassess and <laughs> absolutely need hear to hear their pain, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I fully agree. Um, so it, it's it's interesting also to to hear about how sort of the album was produced. Uh, John Bryan talked about how um, she came up to him very early on in the process, and to quote said, uh, "She said, I write pretty well. I'm a good singer, and I can play my songs well enough on piano. You're good at everything else, so I think that's how we should proceed. And if we're ever off base, I'll let you know." Um, he's often talked about how uh, he doesn't want a lot of credit for this album um, as, as much as, you know, he talks about how he added obviously production to it um, that it was all there before he even entered the equation. Like she had all the songs, she had all the structure of all the songs. I mean, he really just added sort of layers of uh, production to it, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, it's just uh, that she was so hyper aware of what she wanted to say going into this process, I think speaks volumes. Yeah. And um, also how she young about, she was. Uh, yeah. Sorry, please, please. How, how young she was. Still. Yeah, exactly. It was her second yeah. album, but she was what, 21 yeah. when it came out or something. Um, you know, there's that kind she of recording it when she was 21. Yeah. Yeah. There's that tweet about, um, Oh, uh, you know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during quarantine. And it's like, well, Fiona Apple wrote when the pawn when she was 20, like what the hell, what the hell have you done? Um, <laughs> You yeah, know, it's exactly. daunting. And I think that's also a part of it is she's intimidating. You know, she isn't her, her she's a genius and, and that is scary to people and to myself. And, 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 you know, it's, um, and I think people, I'm, I'm, I count myself among them. Like you kind of sometimes push that away because it's a little bit too uh, un, unpleasant to confront, I guess. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I also want to say that I, I think that she's a lot funnier and a lot weirder and a lot sort of sillier than people know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she, you know, you can see it in some interviews. You can see it in some of, uh, some of her music videos. Um, she was interviewed in interview magazine in 2012. And there's this really funny quote where she said, I'm actually very goofy. I hate this feeling like I'm name dropping, but Paul Thomas Anderson told me that two of the funniest people he knows are me and Daniel day Lewis. He was like, you're both hilarious, but everybody thinks you're awful, <laughs> which I, <laughs> which I think feels Right. Like, I think that there's yeah. just a lot of, um, I don't get you. You seem angry. You seem to hate me. I don't want to deal with this. And I, I it's a, it's unfortunate because I think that we're, we're missing out on a, on a, on a really playful person, a darkly playful person, but a pr- playful person nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, I think arguably the biggest song from when the pawn is, is paper bag and yes. that, you know, that has a real sense of humor to it. I mean, the, the, the title is a punchline, you know? Yep. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think we see a lot of that humor develop in her, her, her subsequent albums, uh, you know, uh, all the way up to, um, bolt cutters. And yeah, I think, you know, it's just crazy how we can collectively misjudge someone, you know, um, some of us less so than others, depending on the person, depending on the moment. But, uh, you know, it's really great now that we're get, we get to, to reconsider her though, cause she, you know, deserves it. I, I absolutely agree. I think also, so to, to, to dive into, to some of the songs, um, fast as you can, which was the first single, um, is a. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I don't remember the first time I heard it. You you obviously clearly do. <laughs> um, but it's very jarring on on a first listen. Um, it's the whole rhythm structure of it is it's, it feels like the whole song is trying to shake you and, and sort of try and kind of yell at you at the same time. Um, uh, Fiona talks about exploring the ups and downs of a relationship in the song. When you get to the middle of the song, the spell of confusion takes you out of the element for a minute, which is of course what happens emotionally, but the beat never changes. Apple said the song is really just thoughts that were running through my head that were in that rhythm, which I think again, sort of speaks to her, her mental state. And, and how kind of fast and furious it seems like it is, um, which I think is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's portrait of the artist as a young woman, you know, um, just yeah. kind of free writing, you know, and, and, um, and the results are stunning. I mean, I wish that I could, you know, be <laughs> that, that, <laughs> you know, brilliant, um, when I'm just kind of riffing, but, um, yeah, no, I, I think that fast as you can, I, I, th- I had heard the song before it was on the radio because I eager, I bought the album right away, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I had had title for two years. It, uh, my sister and I kind of remember the, I don't know if you had it in Canada, but like the BMG Music Club or Columbia House. Yeah, we had you could get like 14 yeah. CDs for five cents, but then you were on the hook to buy 10 more at like really high cost. We would just yep. scam that and just get the free CDs. And, and we got title because we liked criminal. And then I listened to the other rest of the record and I was like, eh, I don't like this. And I put it away for a year and a half, two years and then rediscovered it right maybe a couple months before, um, when the pawn was going to come out. And so I was so eager. And when I pressed play and heard fast as you can, um, I might have, um, I guess it's not the first track, but, um, you know, I, maybe I went right to it or something, but, um, I was mm-hmm. like, huh, this isn't, doesn't sound like never is a promise. This doesn't sound like shadow boxer. Um, and that syncopated rhythm and everything. It was, it was again, alienating. Um, but luckily I was able to, to hear past that. Um, and, and pretty soon enjoyed it more than title. Yeah, it's, you know, to talk about sort of the sequencing a little bit, um, she, she talked about how sort of how she wanted the album to like play out and how it's to her, the sequencing of an album, and I'm sure not just her, I'm sure this is the case with most musicians of the sort of the ups and downs and the kind of uh, peaks and valleys that she wanted the album to feel like, um, you know, th- the singles are are very good. Don't get me wrong, and I, I do love them. But I, I think the way things are is a is a truly beautiful song. I think on the bound, um, the opening track is is tremendous. Um, Paper bag is 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 definitely a standout for me. And and when we talk at the end about uh, our top five Fiona uh, songs, it certainly is one of them for me. Um, but I but I want to talk just a little bit about the the music video for Paper Bag, which um, I don't know if you rewatched recently, but mm-hmm, I watched I did, it this yeah. afternoon. And it's, I think it's probably the best sort of, um, uh, these two, you're really seeing Fiona and Paul Thomas Anderson fuse together on that video in a way that I don't know that they ever really will again. Um, th- this idea of this kind of like playful melancholy that they both seem to love so much, um, it's also visually very much sort of, you can see a lot of Magnolia in it, just in the way that it's actually visually cut together and shot. Um, he used the same uh, cinematographer, uh, Robert Elswit, um, and the same editor as well. Um, it's, it's a kind of beautiful video. I don't know how you felt about it. Did it, did it work for you? It's gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it has really nice colors and it's, it's just, yeah. it, it's gentle. It, it sort of, it has a, there's a vague, like Wong Kar Wai kind of vibe to it. Um, totally. But I, I watched it, you know, in the, the kind of immediate 
after blast of, of fetch the bolt cutters. And I was like, was she super uncomfortable? Like, was this really not something she wanted to do? You know, all dolled yep. up and dancing around. Like, did this suck for her? Like maybe she enjoyed it because she enjoyed working with PTA or loved the yeah. song and just wanted to have fun. You know, I'm, I maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think she's someone who is completely averse to, to doing anything lighthearted or silly, certainly. Um, but yeah, I wonder, but it is, you know, it's a lovely music video that, um, you know, wasn't playing on MTV much. And, you know, and it's no. so crazy now that one of the most revered musicians uh, working right now was directed a music video by one of the most revered filmmakers working right now. And at the time it was like, eh, oh, well, like no one really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it was shot um, in uh, uh, grand central station downtown in, in Los Angeles. Um, it, it, it looks really beautiful. Um, it, it's it's got a lot of those kind of those whip pans that he used a lot in his in his early films and and has subsequently kind of gotten rid of. Um, there's also a lot of that sort of um, playing with uh, the, the speed of the film, the sort of undercranking and overcranking and what have you. Um, but it also made me think of a punch drunk love, and and the sort of um, kind of Busby Berkeley kind of musical component that he seemed to have mm-hmm. in that in that movie. Um, I, I hope that someday he just makes a musical because <laughs> uh, you can tell that he has a reverence for that sort of um, the, the, the beauty of it and the, and the escapism of it. So I don't know. And the saying. movement of it too, you know, I mean, you look at, um, I mean, Heart Eight, his first film is much more static by comparison, but you look at Boogie Nights um, and that movie just is all about motion. I mean, it never stops, you know, and his camera is so, he's so good at capturing that Um and I think that, you know, he's, he's moved away from that a bit in, in recent years, but I think something about, um, Phantom Thread, his last film, which I think is spectacular, one of the best movies of yeah. the last decade. Um, it's incredible. The scene at the New Year's Eve party, there's so much movement and color there. And there's a, there's a riot that's happening kind of in the background, you know, the, the Daniel Day Lewis and Vicky Creeps are foregrounded. Um, and, and watching that, I was like, musical? <laughs> like, me you know um and then then watching this video i was like wow yeah totally like like it it, it speaks to to everything and maybe she could write the music you know oh uh, god that, they're still friends so they are they are um it's so um this feels like a good opportunity to talk sort of about this this sort of confluence of their careers coming together they they were they met uh no one really knows but some people have hazard guesses on some party that they met at but the first thing that they worked on together was the music video for uh, across the universe for uh, the pleasantville soundtrack mm-hmm. uh which is a gorgeous music video um filled with shots that I still actually don't know how he pulled off. <laughs> like just physically don't know how he shot them. Um, but it's a black and white video. Uh, it, it takes place within the universe of Pleasantville as they're uh, trashing a, um, I guess a diner is the best way of putting it. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful shop. cover as well. Uh, her covers are absolutely exquisite just in general. Um, I, I don't know if, if you're a fan of, of some of her covers, but I, I think that they're I might have one on my, my top five list. So, Oh, perfect. Uh, as do I. Um, so th- basically, uh, there's a really great Grantland article that I found written by Stephen Hyden about Fiona Apple and Paul Thomas Anderson in 1999, uh, written in 2012, um, as Idler Wheel had just come out and The Master was on its way to coming out as well. So just sort of talking about how these two people kind of clicked had a relationship are no longer, I mean, I guess they seem like they're friends, but how their careers have still sort of gone along a somewhat interesting parallel trajectory. Um, but it, it, it's the, the article sort of talks about December 8th, 1999 is the movie premiere of Magnolia at man village theater in, in Westwood, Los Angeles. Um, and they show up and they're basically the coolest kids in the world. And everyone kind of acknowledges that. And yet at the same time, it feels like, um, they sort of, I don't know, when the relationship falls apart, they kind of fall into recluse and they both sort of, their careers kind of get a little bit weird before they get back on rails together. But um, I guess I sort of wanted to talk to you just in general about what you think about their sort of the the symmetry of their relationship and and their careers. Well, without, I mean, you know, with hazarding a guess since we don't actually know what it's like to be dating either of them. I mean, uh, I think if you're a fucking genius and you're that young, 
meeting another fucking genius who's that young. I mean, he's a little older. And I think you'd be like, well, yeah, we have to be in love now because like no one else <laughs> understands, you know, um, right. while also yeah. having a sense of humor. You know, I think, I think that, you know, it's, I love that, that, um, he said that she and Dade Lewis are the fun, two of the funniest people he knows, but he also, you know, he's married to, uh, Maya Rudolph. He cast Paul F. Tompkins oh, and yeah. there will be blood. Like he, 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 he likes comedy. Um, so clearly there's sure. a, a shared humor there. And a shared genius, um, but genius that manifests, manifests itself in, in very intriguingly different ways for, for each of them. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think that was a power couple that I was certainly conscious of at the time, being a big fan of Magnolia and Boogie Nights and, you know, everything she had done at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think then appreciated what a big deal that was. I mean, like, those two are, are, are like totemic. I mean, they're, they're huge. So, um, I also like that uh, in the the, the sort of reflective nature of vegetable cutters, uh, you know, where Apple is kind of reminiscing about or talking about her, her, her very particular relationships with her exes and that they're pretty, you know, amicable. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it seems to me like maybe, you know, romantically it didn't work, but there's still a deep shared respect um, and so I would be curious to see if they work together again in some capacity. Yeah. I mean, he most recently he did the music video for, um, hot knife off of yeah. uh, the other mm-hmm. wheel. Um, so it's, it's great to see that they do work together again. And it's interesting that you talk about sort of what they took from each other to a certain degree artistically. I mean, she talks a little bit about how seeing him direct Magnolia, like seeing him on set and how exacting he was really gave her sort of the wind in her sails to be that way with, uh, with making one, the pawn, which I think is really interesting. Um, I think it's also interesting to hear him talk about how, uh, you know, obviously as a, a lot of people will know, Amy Mann was the inspiration. A lot of her songs were the inspiration for Magnolia. Um, but he talks a lot about how he was constantly reading Fiona's notebooks and like stealing lines from her basically, which I think is really interesting. Um, Fiona Apple penned the, the worm rap in Magnolia. She's the one that wrote that whole rap that the little boy gives, uh, to, uh, to John C. Riley and Magnolia, which I think is, is, Kind of awesome. Um, and then also just hearing Paul Thomas Anderson talk about Stanley's character in Magnolia and this idea of, and I, I don't love him infantilizing Fiona Apple, but he does talk a lot about how there's a lot of Stanley in that, the way that sort of Stanley yells at, uh, um, oh my God, uh, Philip Baker Hall's character on the, on the game show is very similar to Fiona Apple's VMA speech. So there, there, there is a lot of um, sort of uh, cross referencing going on between the two of them. Yeah, um, no, it, it it seems so. I mean, I think that like if you're both um, producing these incredible works of artistic passion, and then uh, the world is interpreting them perhaps in a way that you didn't want them to, or or didn't hope you know hope that they would they would see something else in it, like that would be bonding too, and and. Um, you know, certainly, uh, uh, I, I would be curious to know how he influenced her in her music. Although I can, I think that's evident in at least part of <laughs> when the pawn. Yeah. Yes. No, you can, you can certainly hear it in, in some of the lyrics. I do think that's, uh, fairly evident. Um, so, uh, one other thing I wanted to, to, to bring up is just sort of the, and, and this, this taps into the perception a little bit too. Um, I was, uh, one of the things that I always remember about Fiona Apple is, is strangely, um, a line from Sex in the City. I don't know mm-hmm. if, uh, if, if you're a fan, Richard, but, um, there is a, an episode that came out in 1999, actually, and it's the episode where, uh, Miranda meets Steve for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he actually, uh, picks her up at a bar by saying, please talk to me or I'll have to keep listening to those NYU kids with the Amstel lights discuss Fiona Apple. Um, I do remember that it, line, yes. there's there's something there of like this it's a little bit of side eye but it's also i don't know it it feels like a little bit of judgment going on that like only hipster assholes like fiona apple (laughs) i I don't know if maybe i'm reading too much into it but it felt that way and it's it's something that kind of stayed with me oh yeah no for sure i mean i think Um, again she was she was challenging and people didn't like that. I mean, I like Sex and the City, but like it's it's uh, it's unfortunate that she was ever a punchline because um, she deserves better. 
yes, no, I would, I would, I would fully agree with that. Um, so do you want to talk through our top five Fiona Apple songs? Is that yeah, please. That would, uh... <laughs> okay. Um, so do you want to start at the bottom and work your way up? To so five. That, uh, yeah, so we're going to go five. five to one. Um, yeah, sure. Well, yeah. five is the cover I was alluding to. Um, and mm-hmm. that's the whole of the moon, which is the, the water boys song, um, that Fiona Apple covered, f- I believe for the show, the affair, which uses another of her songs, mm-hmm. uh, as its mm-hmm. opening credit song. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of sacrilegious to put a cover uh, on a top five list of one of the, of a great songwriter. Um, but she just sings the hell out of that song. And I love the arrangement she did. And, um, it's just, yeah, it's just such a, it's such a, a new and exciting interpretation of a, of a really, really great song with lyrics that are not exactly her style, but, um, speak with a kind of ragged honesty in the same way that her music does. Yeah, I, I agree. And I also feel like um, Fiona is such a, a perfect match for that show. You know, I mm-hmm. feel like there's they, they just her voice and and her career and what have you um, is a perfect match for for uh, for that show. Um, my number five is also my cover. Um, it's a different cover. Uh, it's the cover of Sally's song from The Nightmare Before, Chris, uh, <laughs> Before Christmas. Oh, wow. Um, that yeah. she did. Um, which, which I adore. And, and I also want to say, I really love Catherine O'Hara's version of it, <laughs> the original version of it. Um, but there's just some, there, there is a, a longing and a sadness in Fiona's voice in the song, um, that I just absolutely adore. And, uh, I mean, I love the song. I, I love the movie, but, um, it just adds a whole new layer to it that just, I don't know, just really stayed with me. And it's, it's one of my favorites of hers. That's a great, that's uh, a great choice. <laughs> Um, my number four is a song. Um, my number four is a song from, uh, the idler wheel, uh, called anything we want. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just think it's a really sweet, um, kind of sexy romantic song with a, again, a melancholy lilt to it. Um, but, but the romance, the sweetness of it, I think is a little bit different from, from what we're used to from her. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's been in her music for forever, but, um, I think anything we want really teases it out in its very frank, um, upfront kind of na- narrative lyrics. Um, and it's got, you know, I, I think I, on, I do tend to gravitate towards stuff of hers that has a little bit more melody maybe than, um, some of the really harder edge stuff. Um, but this, I feel like is a happy medium between the two. Uh, that's also my number four, Richard. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Uh, there you go. But, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll add just one, uh, I'll piggyback one thing on that. And I agree with everything that you just said about it. Um, I kind of love that lyrically it sounds as though it's jumping around in time. There's, there's, um, it feels as though, uh, there's portions of it where they're children and there's portions of it where they're adults. And that there's just mm-hmm. sort of this, this feeling in the song that it like covers a lifetime almost, which I really love. Um, yeah. So yeah. So uh, yeah, what's your number sure. three? I mean, it, it, it's got depth, even though the lyrics are seem sort of simple. Um, so my number three is a song from Extraordinary Machine um, called mm-hmm. "Oh Sailor." Yes. And I put it on there because I like the the melody of it, but I I also I put it on because it was literally stuck in my head for two years. Um, <laughs> and any song that does that must be good. So. It, it is. It's a. It's a tremendous song. It's my favorite song on Extraordinary Machine for yeah. sure. Um, which I don't have on my top five, but, um, it is a, it is a, a beautiful song. I, I, my number three and my number two are a little bit predictable. My number three is fast as you can. Um, which I, I just, as, as we mentioned earlier, I love it. I also just that we didn't really talk a little bit about the lyrics, but lyrics like I'm tired of wise choking on wise. I need a little because is, I don't know. It's, it's, it's almost on time esque. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it know, totally is. Totally she's is. got amazing wordplay. Um, similar to fetch the bolt cutters. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd beg to disagree, but disagree, uh, but begging disagrees with me, you know, um, yes. she's yes. just really good at that wordplay, which again, she's clever. She's funny. She is. She really is. Yeah. Uh, so what's your number two? My number two is from the album. You hate title. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know you don't hate it. Um, is pale. I do not hate it. Um, the song is pale September. Um, which Mm -hmm. it was tough choosing one because never is a promise. I have a theory that between fast as you fast as you can and never is a promise, both being track number seven. Um, it started me on this kind of conspiracy theory as a teenager that seven was the best track on on most good albums. I don't think that's actually panned out, but 
<laughs> anyway, um, so I thought about putting Shadowboxer on here or Never's a Promise or a number of other songs, but Pale September, re-listening to it in, in preparation for talking to you, um, I, 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 I am so transported back to my bedroom in Boston, <laughs> Massachusetts, pining after a boy, uh, learning lines for the school play, not studying for anything I, I was supposed to be learning, you know, um, on my beloved boombox, just putting that on. Uh, it just, it's, it's such an evocative, beautiful song. I, I, I'd be lying if I said I knew it well, cause I don't listen to title as much as I should. Um, but, uh, I, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry. Um, my number two is paper bag. Um, I, I, as we talked a little bit, um, when we were talking about the music video, um, there is a, a very Broadway quality to it. It's very, uh, melodious. It's, um, it's, it's in Bridesmaids. <laughs> it's a very good song. Um, it also has some, some of, uh, uh, some of her, my favorite lyrics from her, uh, lyrics like hunger hurts. I want him so bad. Oh, it kills. Cause I know I'm a mess. He don't want to clean up. I got a full cause these hands are too shaky to hold. Hunger hurts, but starving works when it costs too much for love. Um, she's, yeah, she just has a, a, a knack for, um, understanding the human heart in a way that a lot of artists either don't want to or uh, or just don't have the ability to. And, and I think um, speaking about it unselfconsciously, you know, she's not really yeah. embarrassed about these raw feelings. Um, she doesn't dress them up in, you know, cutesiness or overabundance of, you know, obfuscating poetry. She's, she's pretty frank about it, which I really like. Totally. And, and, you know, a song that we didn't talk about from the album that, that I think is a perfect, uh, estimation to what you're talking about is a mistake. You know, she's, she's willing to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Even the lyrics saying, you know, why can't I make a mistake? Um, is, and, and I mean, whether or not there's a, a literal quality to that or, or a metaphorical one, it's just, um, it's that, that baldness, that frankness of being able to say, like, I'm a human being, like, I'm going to fuck up. I'm going to make mistakes and that's okay. And you're going to fuck up and you're going to make mistakes and that's okay. Yeah. I listened to a mistake a lot, um, in college whenever I developed an ill, yet another ill advised crush on someone. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure. You're not alone. I don't think. <laughs> um, so what was your, uh, what was your number one? My number one, I think is one of the most romantic songs ever written, uh, particularly about showbiz romance. It's from the album that we are talking about. Uh, primarily uh, it's the end of when the pawn um, I know mm-hmm. um, I think I know is just the perfect ending to that album. It has a soft kind of closing time, you know, light flickering off shuffling out onto the sort of dimly lit street kind of energy to it. End of the show. Um, I think it's, it's a little bitter. It's a little sweet. It's um, it's just a great, great, great little song that, um, I think doesn't get a ton of play because it's, it's just so gentle comparatively to some of her other stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's something I think I really like about it, that that she shows that side of her, um, herself as well. It's yeah, it's, it's really only one of two, um, piano ballads on the album. The other one being love ridden. Um, and yeah, it's, it's those two songs, which I really, really love. Um, it's clear, obviously, I love the whole album, but those two songs feel very naked and very sort of, uh, emotionally vulnerable. Um, which again comes back to sort of that fearlessness that she has. Um, my number one also speaks to that a little bit. It's from the idler wheel. Uh, every single night was my number one song. Um, mm. I, uh, there's a bunch of reasons why I love the song, but the one that I always come back to is the fact that, uh, uh, like all writers, I am a neurotic mess. And, um, the song is about anxiety and it's about sort of neuroses and it's about how you live with those things. Um, you know, the song is literally, I mean, I'll, I'll read some of the lyrics very quickly, but every single night I endure the flight of little wings of white flame butterflies in my brain. These ideas of mine percolate the mind, trickle down the spine, swarm the belly, swelling like a braise. That's when the pain comes in like a second skeleton trying to fit beneath the skin. I can't fit the feelings in every single night, my night alight with my brain. Um, and, and, and it just, it, it so perfectly encapsulates that idea of feeling like there's something inside you that you can't tame something inside you that you can't sort of figure out how to crack the code to. Um, but she does it in such a, not just eloquent way, but in a way that makes it not seem frightening and makes it seem as though it's, 
that you can get through it. Um, it's just, uh, I don't know, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, not to get oh, heavy handed, but like mm-hmm. if we're all trying to ride the bucking Bronco of our emotional lives, uh, she does it so elegantly, you know, yes. and yes. it's sort of inspiring to watch her. She's still having a rough go of it. Like we all are. Um, but she manages to do it with some grace and wit and, um, you know, and I think that that's really why she's so excellent and so worth listening to. I, I I couldn't agree more. Um, there's two other quick things that I that I want to bring up just because you know we have a, a I think one of our finest film critics outside of Ben <laughs> Hosley on here, um, so I, I feel like I, I I need to ask two quick things. But um, Tarantino talked a little bit uh, about Extraordinary Machine back in 2006. They did an episode uh, of IFC's Iconoclast together. I don't know if you ever saw that episode, mm, um, which know. was qu- quite interesting as you can imagine. Um, but he said. I found a lot of the lines I love the most, not all of them, but a lot of the lines I love the most were of violent imagery. She writes very violent sentences. It's metaphorical, but she also means it in the exact same time. She didn't want to kill him in that moment. Not really, but yeah, really. Um, I, I think that there is something kind of, and this, this sort of harkens back really to sort of the beginning of this episode when we were talking about why people kind of push her away. And I think there's a lot of people that are frightened of her, that, that they think that she is not that she's actually physically violent, but that there's some sort of a, uh, untamed beast component to her. I love that about her, but I can understand some people finding that, uh, perhaps off-putting. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think that something that's intimidating about her and, and, and other people who have this kind of singular genius, you know, uh, um, is, um, they still have to exist in the world with other people, you know, and, they have to date them and they have to go to work with them and they have to, you know, uh, do all the things that we all do. I mean, I guess maybe she's sort of chosen, she's opted out of late Fiona has because, you know, she's mostly holed up in her house in Venice beach, but sure. But I can see why the frustration of dealing with people who just don't see it fully or don't understand it, you know, could in, in writing in metaphorical terms, um, come out as sort of violent. Yeah. Because it's just, it's just, a, a, I would imagine I don't experience this cause I'm not a genius, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, a frustration that um, uh, you know, this kind of higher being looking down and being like, why do I have to be stuck with all of you? <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing that I wanted to, to ask you about is um, the needle drop in hustlers which I think is mm-hmm. tremendous. I think we, I think it <laughs> will go down in film history, but um, I was trying to sort of figure out why it works so well. And I know it's one of your favorite films from last year. And I kind of wonder if you've thought about why that sort of confluence of Fiona in that moment uh, of hustlers works so well. I think the two reasons it works um, as well as it does uh, chiefly, it's so unexpected. Um, right. you know, it could be any strippery song from the last 40 years and we would have been like, okay, that makes sense. But Fiona Apple criminal, like it's so out of the blue. It also, you know, kind of teases <laughs> what's to come in the story. Um, sure. Which is fun. I think the other reason is Lorene Scavaria who made the film is about our age. Um, right. I would argue that the core audience for that film is twenties, thirties, you know, um, mm-hmm. and so it just was this wonderfully unexpected injection of nostalgia in a movie that yeah. otherwise feels so, even though it takes place in the recent past, like feels so contemporary, you know? Um, so I think she, it's, I think in a way playing criminal while this, you know, emblem of the last two decades of show business does this incredible dance to <laughs> it, um, is, uh, is Scafaria kind of winking at us and being like, don't worry, I got you. I've got you taken care of. Like this is going to be a good movie. I know what I'm doing. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna play criminal while Jennifer Lopez, you know, does a highly rehearsed striptease. Um. So yeah, I think I think it's it's such a well um chosen uh bit of discordancy, I guess. No, I I, I mean obviously you you uh you hit the nail on the head. It it also feels too um it 
it, it, first of all, it also brought Fiona Apple a little bit back into the conversation. Yeah. It feels like the scene that everybody talked about. Um, it's great to see that the money that, uh, that she got off of the, the music rights she put towards charities, which is also wonderful. Um, but it's, it, it was just a really great sort of lightning rod moment. And I love that Fiona Apple got to be a part of that. Um, so, uh, to sort of wrap up, do you, I, I'm not going to ask you to, to rank all of Fiona's apples, even though she only has five of them, but do you have a favorite of hers? Yeah. I mean, when the pawn. Yeah. yeah I, and I think, I, <laughs> I think, was going to say the same thing, but I just yeah, wasn't sure. I think it's such a rich album. I think it, it, it blends that melodiousness with the, the sort of more, you know, syncopated, uh, a melodic stuff that she's done since, um, I think that her latter albums all have certain gems on them that I really, really adore. But as uh, as a holistic experience, I think When the Pawn uh, does it for me the best. Uh, and also, you know, look, we a lot of our taste really kind of hardens when we're about that age, you know, and, and we'll never recover <laughs> from the, the movies and TV and music that we listened to uh, when our brains were still uh, full, not formed fully. Um so yeah, but I mean, look, looking back on it, I mean, this has been a great opportunity doing this with you to, to, to re-listen to the album in full and just marvel at like every song is terrific and its own entity and says something interesting in an interesting way. And very, very, very few people working now, but especially I feel like in 1999, can, can, we could say that about yeah, I mean, I, I I can safely say that now looking back on it and doing this podcast, breaking everything down from '99. I mean, there isn't an album that really even comes close to it for me from 1999. I mean, there are songs that perhaps I like more than songs on this album from '99, but it's just it just it feels like that year to me of of just all of this tremendous art coming out, you know, uh, obviously, um, you know, the movies that came out in 99, but just the television shows and, and, and the books and what have you, it just, it was a really seismic year and, and, um, you know, a seismic album to come out during it. So, uh, it's, it's just, um, it's just really, really lovely to be able to, uh, to dive into it again with you. So I really appreciate that. Richard. Yeah. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to prove to people out there that I liked her back when I'm not one of these carpet bagging people who saw hustlers and then decided all of a sudden they were huge Fiona <laughs> Apple fans when I never heard them say a thing about either wheel or extraordinary machine. Um, so there we go. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that I could give you that opportunity. Thank Richard. you. So I, I, <laughs> Um, but I, I hope that you'll come back and talk about a movie because it does seem kind of crazy that I have one of the best movie critics on it. He didn't talk about a movie. I'd so love to. I yeah, it'd be fun. I'm, I'm look, uh, got nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I will, uh, I will reach out again, but again, thank you so much, Richard. I, I really do appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Phil. I was staring at the sky, just looking for a star to pray on or wish on or something like that. I was having a sweet fix of a daydream of a boy whose reality I knew was a hopeless to be had. But then the dove of hope began its downward slope. And I believed for a moment that my chances were approaching to be grand. But as it came down near, so did a weary tear. I thought it was a bird, but it was just a pain. Hunger hurts and I want them so bad I will kill Cause I know I'm a messy Don't wanna clean up I got the focus These hands are too shaky to hold Hunger hurts and starving works Wake up Too much to Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 